Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, since December, global markets have rallied significantly and broadly across asset classes and geographies. To get a sense of where there still may be value, we turn to our next guest, Tom Fink. Tom is chairman and CEO of Bearings, based in Charlotte, North Carolina. But Tom comes to us today from the Milken Institute Conference in Los Angeles. Tom, thanks so much for joining us. Um, As you look about globally, uh, where do you see opportunities right now? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on, Paul. It's you know, been my goal to be on the on the radio with you. Of course. Uh, <laughs> but um, you know, when you look at it, yes, we did have a very uh, significant sell-off in most markets in the fourth quarter. Slowly, that's worked its way back. Uh, that said, I think the you can find value in any market but i think because emerging markets equity and 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 emerging market debt have been down for so long there's probably more upside value in on a general basis uh than you might uh expect on the uh, more developed markets so let's talk specifics uh in particular in asia i know that bearings is uh, focused on building out the business there and i'm just Mm -hmm. wondering which nations in particular and which businesses how are you going about it sure so when you look at our business overall you know we're a fairly broadly diversified asset manager Um, in asia we've actually been there through the our legacy business on the on the bearing side in the uh, equity and fixed income markets, in the fund markets in Hong Kong, you know, Taiwan, uh, Tokyo, and Korea for a very long time, um, half a century in Hong Kong. In terms of our growth, uh, last year we uh, did uh, receive our licensing and established a presence in Shanghai. Uh, but we've also been in some of the uh, private markets, in, per- in particular, uh, direct leverage lending uh, in areas like uh, Australia and Singapore, um, where we've done a, a lot of transactions over the last 10 years. So, Tom, so thinking about your Asia business and continuing to invest in Asia, how important to your business that the U.S. and China forge meaningful trade agreements? I think it's very important. You know, f- frankly, I think it was an error by uh, U.S. Uh, both parties uh, during the 16 election to basically ignore uh, TPP, you know, the reality is you, you need agreements to uh, provide the basis for uh, trade at the end of the day. And, you know, is it a distraction, this uncertainty between the U.S. and, and China? Sure. Are, are we hopeful that they come up with some resolution? Yes, because it probably uh, allows more clarity for businesses to invest and if you will, get on with it. Um, so I do think it's important for the global economy and ultimately sh- uh, the markets. So I'm wondering, Tom, the challenge in uh, delving into leveraged lending, in particular mm-hmm. in areas uh, that are, if, you know, if not emerging, uh, more susceptible to rapid investor flows. At this point in the cycle, how do you go about doing it? And are you seeing any warning signs? Well, you know, the the leverage loan market is something that was a big part of my career be, before they made, you know, I, I got into more of the management side. 
and I've seen the cycles from the late 80s, uh, you know, when the uh, uh, junk bomb market and Drexel blew up th uh, through the 90s and 9-11 uh, and, of course, the financial crisis. If, when you talk about the leverage loan market, for instance, or the high-yield bond market, yes, it has grown, but you also have to look at the fact that the amount of, uh, if you will, enterprise value in private companies has grown dramatically. We've seen... Um, you know, over 30 years, many companies go private or stay private. So just the growth of a market itself doesn't mean it's overheated. That being said, we have a long recovery, a long cycle. Uh, it's prudent to approach the market assuming that, you know, you're later in the cycle. So you just have to be more selective uh, in the deals you do uh, to, to be prepared for what will eventually be uh, an increase in defaults in a, in a credit cycle at some point. What's interesting to me, I, I'm wondering, Tom, if you actually are seeing more opportunities in leveraged lending right now because there has been so much bad press around loans. and We have seen loans lagging behind high-yield bonds to the point where actually uh, loans in some in some respects yield more than high-yield bonds, mm -hmm. which is an unusual yeah. confluence. I mean, is this sort of an opportunity? Yeah, it, it is an opportunity. In fact, the way we are built, our high-yield loan business, it's all integrated, right? And a lot of our strategies can move between the bond and loan market, between the U.S. and European markets, you know, because the relative value does uh, ebb and flow over time. There's times that bonds are cheap to loans and, and times where you know loans are, are cheap to bonds based on risk return. And so... It's not that we go all in to one or the other, but we may overweight at a time when, for instance, you know, loans appear more attractive on a risk-adjusted basis. You know, we may allocate more there. So, Tom, you're at the Milken Conference in Los Angeles. What has been maybe the most surprising takeaway you've had so far there? You know, it's a great conference in part because it's, it's not just about sitting around talking about the economy and the markets. And um, I was on a, a panel with a lot smarter people than me yesterday, and uh, uh, it, and we followed Madame Lagarde. And one, she was fabulous to listen to and, and just, just very impressive views. But what was interesting is we moved from, you know, talking about, what you would expect markets and, and economies and things like that uh, really started talking about uh, the issues of workforce and about education. And, you know, in essence, I think the skills gap is uh, underscores a lot of the challenges of the future and, and how do you deal with that? So there's, there's a number of panels focused on that. And I think that's a very relevant and important topic. Tom Fink, thank you so much for being with us, and uh, best of luck to you throughout the rest of the conference. Tom Fink, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Bearings, which oversees $310 billion from Charlotte, North Carolina. Last week, Citigroup CEO Michael Corbett said that one thing that's keeping him up most at night is the widening income gap in the United States, saying that it has led, not just the U.S., but around the world, and said that it has led to increasingly polarized politics. The question is... What do you do about that? And right now joining us here in our interactive broker studios is Nell Abernathy, Vice President of Strategy and Policy at the Roosevelt Institute. Uh, Nell, you just put out a new report 
new rules for the 21st century corporate power, public power, and the future of the American economy, digging into some of these issues. Before we get into the details, why is it important to bridge the gap, the inequality, uh, the income inequality gap right now? Thanks so much for having me. That's a great question. And I think we've seen that there are people all around the world, but focusing even on the U.S., who feel very disconnected from the growth that's occurring that we see in the headline numbers, GDP growth, stock market growth. And the reality is these actually aren't reflecting the real experience that Americans have who are trying to put their kids through college, get health insurance, stay on health insurance, pay for housing. And that's becoming not only an economic problem, but a political problem as well. So what created or how did this income equality become so pronounced? And maybe what current policies, whether they're government policies or, you know, corporate policies that are supporting this or sustaining this issue? We argue in this most recent report that we need to fundamentally rethink our approach to markets and our approach to government. We need markets to do what they can do well, create jobs, innovate, provide valuable goods and services, but that's not how markets are functioning today. Due to this market fundamentalism, where we've thought if we just let markets do what they do, they'll take care of everything, we've really created an enormous set of opportunities for corporations and the wealthy to extract value instead of create value. So what can you do about it? We talk about antitrust policy. Let's reduce the power of corporations over workers and their competitors. We talk about corporate governance reform. Let's ensure that firms aren't only focused on returning funds to their shareholders. Let's talk about labor policy reform and ensure that workers can actually bargain for some of the share of profits they're creating. In practical terms, does this mean breaking up the big tech companies and limiting share buybacks? Is that what you're calling for? Absolutely. Those are two examples of the kinds of things that would address the roots of the problem. One thing a lot of people have pushed back and said that share buybacks is simply the, the reason why companies are buying back shares is because they don't have better projects to invest in. And if they were just to invest in other things, it would make for a bad business model. So I think that argument looks at ending share buybacks in a vacuum, and I would argue it's only one tool of the many that we need to promote. So for example, yeah, if you don't need to compete to stay uh, innovative as a firm, why would you be investing? But if you have a, a competition policy that forces firms to actually invest and innovate, then you won't need to, you, you will have to put money into investment in order to maintain long-term viability. So as we head towards the 2020 election, a lot of the Democratic candidates, Senator Warren, for example, Bernie Sanders, have talked about you know, radically altering the tax structure, the tax policy of this country to, in part to address this income inequality. Is that something that your report dealt with? Absolutely. I think that we need to start thinking about taxes the way they've talked about it as well as not simply about raising revenue, but actually structuring economic policy and incentivizing different kinds of behaviors. And right now, our tax structure, again, incentivizes a lot of extractive corporate behaviors and and speculation and tax dodging or evasion. And so we can think about how we come up with a pro-growth, pro-investment, pro-democracy tax policy. So just to give us a sense of how feasible some of these proposals mm-hmm. are. Can you give us a sense of what your contacts are with politicians and how mainstream these views are versus sort of uh, more on the left-leaning side of the Democratic Party? Absolutely. These policies are actually 
becoming increasingly mainstream. And I think that's because two reasons. First, the crisis is such that people understand the kinds of tweaks around the edges are just not going to work. But also, this is not a radical view of government. This is a, a level of government intervention and regulation that Franklin Roosevelt would be very comfortable with, that was a common in American politics before the 1980s. And so we're really not talking about uh, some kind of either market fundamentalism or government does everything approach. It's a both and. It sounds like this, well, let me ask you, is this more of a public-private type of cooperative type move, or do you think the government needs to take a much heavier hand here in, in implementing some of these changes? So we argue in this report that we need to uh, tackle reforms along two levels. One is restructuring markets so that markets do what they do well. And the other, then, is a more robust version of public power or public intervention where the government actually does some things better than markets. And that's something we've forgotten. We default to thinking that markets are always going to be more effective than government. And there are some things that government can actually do more effectively. So when you talk about, I want to go to the the antitrust issues Mm -hmm. that you raised, because this is something that we've heard from other guests, the idea that perhaps people should look at breaking up or at least limiting the growth, particularly in technology or, Mm -hmm. say, Amazon. And I'm just wondering, what do you say to people who argue that these companies have lower costs and improved the uh, quality of life for people who can have easier access to goods, cheaper access to them, uh, as well as, you know, more media and, and other things. Absolutely. So I think there are two important things to remember about antitrust policy. One, it's not simply about breaking things up. That is one option that in in certain industries does make sense. In others, for example, with platforms where you see the kind of benefits that come from having a large network, you wouldn't necessarily break up that network. You might just impose some kind of oversight to make sure, for example, they can't sell all your data to uh, ad buyers. Um, Second of all, One of the challenges we've seen in antitrust policy is that everything is defined by the value to the consumer. And what what most reformers are arguing is we need to consider more than just consumers. We also need to consider competitors and workers. And it doesn't make a lot of sense if you can get cheap goods, if there's no no job for you, no opportunities to build wealth through starting your own business, and a really dysfunctional democracy. Interesting. Nell Abernathy, thank you so much for joining us. Nell is the Vice President, Strategy and Policy for the Roosevelt Institute, joining us live here in our Bloomberg Interactive uh, Broker Studio. Well, we continue to get more data points on big tech this week. We had Google report disappointing numbers uh, after the close last night. And tonight after the close, we have Apple uh, reporting results. So to get more details on what is going on with the world with big tech, we bring in David Garrity. David's a chief market strategist for Laidlaw and Company. He's also a partner at BT Block. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, David, thanks so much for being with us. Let's start with Google how concerned are you with that slowing revenue growth story there? 
Well, it's been a market deceleration. I mean, if you look at the progression, a year ago, the company was growing its revenues by about 26% year over year. Fourth quarter of 2018, that was 22%. This last quarter was 17%. So you basically have seen, you know, 11 percentage points of deceleration year over year. Obviously, if you took this 5% decline quarter over quarter and annualized it, you know, 20% would say that you're actually starting to see accelerating deceleration in terms of the growth and to the extent that the market tends to you know operate off of the second derivative in terms of looking at how say, prices go accelerating uh, deceleration that's exactly right. i know exactly what he means <laughs> yes yeah. i do too actually but it just does it's second derivative some people would call it asymptotic to the downside Ooh, look at that not necessarily a pretty picture one thing that i'm curious about is who's stealing the share right i mean because facebook we saw increase their share marginally of the ad revenue and this is sort of the big deceleration with respect to Google, particularly on the YouTube platform, not a lot of answers as to why, what was behind the decline in the ad spending on YouTube uh, in Google's results, Alphabet's results. I'm just wondering, uh, is it really a Facebook winning, Amazon winning, Google the big loser here? Well, I would certainly say it seems to be shaking out that way. We could talk about who has the stickier audience, and we could say that you know Facebook, despite the issues that have been raised around it, and which will continue to dog the company going forward, hasn't yet really seen the rate of attrition off of their platform to potentially lose uh, an annuity stream, if you will of online advertising revenue. Uh, Google really, as we know, never really been all that successful in building a social media platform. Yes, YouTube has been a wonderful franchise for them. You know, one can argue about the quality of the content on the site, um, but you know, Google necessarily hasn't had that stickiness. Amazon, we know consumers are going to at least on a daily basis and perhaps even more frequently than that. So, you know, I look most significantly at Amazon's growth in online advertising revenue of 34% year over year, basically double the rate we're seeing of the 17% for Google. As Amazon, clearly, this is a game that they're going to win. I think that they take it first from Google, Facebook second. It's interesting. One of the um, uh, concerns I think I've heard from investors really over the last couple of reporting periods, but certainly after yesterday, is the lack of disclosure by Google for some of their other businesses that investors feel like a, they're big businesses, and B, we think they're good growth stories. I'm thinking the cloud business, um, YouTube, um, and they're concerned they're just not getting any disclosure from the company. How concerning is that to you? Well, it's always been concerning. Ever since the company went public back in 2004, they came out with this mantra of do no evil, you know, followed by an investor relations uh, mantra of saying, trust us. Uh, well, clearly what's going on here in all this opacity is not something that's encouraging to investors. You know, certainly we have great uncertainty as to when do we actually see the payoff from these new initiatives, whether it's Waymo self-driving cars, um, you know, <clears throat> that could be five to 10 years or more out in the future, and they may not necessarily be successful in this regard. So clearly we see billions of dollars, you know, going to not really a well-defined opportunity. So I want to shift gears a little bit because we did get Alphabet after the bell yesterday. Today after the bell, we're going to get Apple. A lot of people looking for some sort of gauge on the smartphone market and also just how well Apple is diversifying into services and even, uh, and I know you're going to get excited, media and what could potentially happen there. So uh, I'm just curious, what are you looking for? What do you think could potentially be the biggest surprise today? 
I mean, certainly the big thing that the company is going to have to address is the expectation of a 19% decline year over year in smartphone sales. And then certainly that in many ways is driven by, you know, weakness in the Chinese economy, but also the fact that consumers have gotten to a point where the affordability of a handset um, has gotten to the point where people are saying, look, if I don't necessarily feel confident about my spending, this is a durable good, and I'm just going to hold on to what I have longer. So, you know, clearly at the end of the day, it says for Apple, you know, they better see accelerating growth in terms of services. I think the streaming media announcement that they had earlier uh, certainly plays into seeing acceleration in services growth as we go out towards 2020. But, you know, Apple is a stock up 41% from its lows uh, most recently, you know, certainly in a position to continue to return cash to investors. This is the point of the year where we see their dividend decision being made, typically something that serves to sustain a stock. So, you know, unlike obviously Google, where there's opacity, certainly when you look at Apple, despite the fact that they narrowed the scope of their disclosure around what actual iPhone shipments they were making, uh, certainly provides better relative disclosure. Do you think they should be more, Apple should be more aggressive in returning cash? They've got over $200 billion worth of cash. Um, I, you know, certainly they've got the wherewithal if that's a decision that they wish to make. But one might argue that, you know, in contrast to other names, one could say that Apple has done a far better job in terms of providing clarity around the expected expected returns on their investments, as well as a better, I think, return on invested capital overall. David Garrity, thank you so much, as always, for being with us. David Garrity, Chief Market Strategist for Laidlaw and Company, also partner at BT Block. Well, it has been a big earnings day from Big Pharma. Today, we had Merck, Eli Lilly, and Pfizer all reported earnings this morning to get the latest. We turn to Sam Fazelli. Sam is Director of Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone from London. Uh, Sam, thanks so much for joining us. It seems like your company's had a pretty good quarter here, most beating estimates, raising some estimates. What's the bottom line? Yeah, so hi, Paul and Lisa. The, um, uh, the three companies reported today, and, and in order of uh, performance, uh, Lilly, then Pfizer, then Merck. Merck having the best beats on sales and EPS for the first quarter. And basically, um, underlying business is, is doing well. But in all three cases, Paul, there were some uh, issues and questions that would raise some angst. Um, uh, for us, at least. So, Angst, uh, I want to talk about Eli Lilly in particular because uh, that seemed to have uh, the one small miss, uh, at least when it came to revenues, I believe. Mm -hmm. And I'm trying to figure out uh, how important it is that their actual prices declined in certain uh, drugs. Yeah, so that's that's obviously the focus over here with, when we're looking at these numbers. Um, you know, drug pricing, U.S. drug pricing uh, is is an issue that everyone's focused on. So uh, it's not uh, surprising that everyone's hypersensitive to when a company says that they had lower net realized pricing. On the call, they did actually say that part of the issue for this big drug that they have, which is analyzing at over about $4 billion, Trulicity for diabetes. And that's obviously a big, big growth driver for them and, and, and a significant chunk of their overall revenues. So everyone's very, very focused on it. And they said that actually what one of the key drivers of that missing consensus in this first quarter was inventory down, um, to, uh, downturn in the first quarter. So one assumes that that would return back to normal in 2Q. The problem for Lilly 
is to a degree it's really high PE. So at the moment it's sitting, despite the share price drop, at the second highest PE multiple valuation amongst large pharma. So that doesn't leave much room for error. So switching gears to Merck, when I, when I think of Merck, I think of the drug uh, Keytruda. What happened with that drug this quarter? Is that still the growth driver for this company? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, these are all, we're only playing at the margins. I mean, that drug is analyzing at pretty close to $10 billion a year. And it is a revolutionary drug for the treatment of uh, cancer, as I'm sure you've heard me say before. The... Um, the, the, the anomaly there is that it did miss versus consensus for the first quarter slightly. Um, it, we have a little um, uh, sales uh, scenario that we've set up and, and it actually met our sales expectations for first quarter. But the key issue is that both for consensus in terms of uh, U.S. sales and our numbers, they were lighter. So that was one issue that I think people kind of highlighted. But to be honest, their their growth across the board in international markets, China up 58%, um, including the impact of currency. Um, that's phenomenal. Uh, that, that really has driven top line. And they, their beat and their raise is pretty high quality. You mentioned uh, the currency effect there. Can you just give us a sense of which of the big pharmacy giants, uh, pharmaceutical giants that reported earnings this morning had the biggest currency impact uh, and really how much credence to give this or how much weight to give this? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, currency, we try and all scratch beyond that. At the end of the day, it's completely out of their control. Um, so the, heavy, the, the, the stronger U.S. dollar has impacted all of them. Now, different companies have got different level of exposure to ex-US versus US. So at the end of the day, really not something that I'm particularly bothered by because come, and, come 12 months time, it all analyzes and it goes the other direction. So it's really not operational, so not, not necessarily a major focus. So Sam, one of the major focuses, however, is just the pressure on drug prices. I know, you know certain sectors of the healthcare space have just been crushed this year, health insurers as you know, you see political rhetoric ratchet up that, uh, you know, more regulation. And uh, how have the big pharma companies weathered and their stocks weathered the pressure and the concern about uh, high drug prices? You know, I think they've actually done pretty well. We did have a wobble a week or two ago when the Medicare for All idea was surfaced, I have to say, again, by uh, presidential candidate um, uh, Bernie Sanders. But that is not a new proposal, certainly not from a new proposal from him. It's something that has come up before. We don't think that's got meaningful legs on it in terms of future um, reality, given the variety of pushes and pulls in the Congress and Senate, etc., in terms of Democrats versus um, Republicans. At the end of the day, there is pressure on or existing pressure on U.S. drug prices from the payers. And the comp companies are competing with each other. So the way they are dealing with it is by coming up with more and more innovative therapies, things that are treating diseases, not just with symptomatic relief, but actually making a patient live much longer than they did before. Examples of gene therapy and that sort of thing. Sam Fazelli, thank you so much for being with us. Sam Fazelli, Director of Research for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us from London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.